Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, corporate news media use at least a couple of largely unexplored lenses through which to present U.S. human rights violations. One is the U.S. does not commit human rights violations except by accident or as unavoidable collateral for an ultimately net gain mission, be that international or domestic. The other is they aren't violations if the U.S. does them because we're in a civilization war, a fight of good over evil, so all battles are holy, and you can't commit human rights violations against non-humans, after all. So where's the problem? Again, that narrative covers global and at-home violations. So elite news media have trouble navigating the place of the U.S. in a global context, and the media-consuming public suffer as a result. There's a new report from the U.N. about this country and human rights. We'll hear about it from Jamil Dakwar, director of the Human Rights Program at the ACLU. Also on the show, headlines tell us that the U.S. public don't know a lot about Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House of Representatives. That's true as far as it goes, but isn't it also a kind of admission of failure for a press corps that really should be actively informing us about the person third in line for the presidency? Like maybe his idea that some of the people that he is nominally representing should burn in hell? Matt Gertz, senior fellow at Media Matters, will give us some things to consider as we see coverage of Mike Johnson going forward. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As U.S. officials and pundits appear to consider which babies are really civilians and which interpretation of law allows for their murder, you can almost imagine them thinking that the world is watching, waiting to learn. What do these smart people think about geopolitics? What will they decide? When certainly what a huge number of people are thinking around the world and in this country is, where do they get off? What allows so many U.S. professional talking type people in 2023 to imagine that they are the city on the hill? The belief in U.S. exceptionalism, the idea that this country alone can and should serve as international arbiter, not because of a massive military and a readiness to use it, but because of the impenetrable moral high ground earned by a commitment to democratic principles. Well, that belief is price of admission 
to the serious people foreign policy conversations in the U.S. press. So something like the recent report from the U.N. Human Rights Committee that assesses the U.S. the same way it would assess any other country on human rights issues lands in corporate U.S. news media like a message from Mars. Joining us now with a differing context is Jamil Dakwar, director of the Human Rights Program at the ACLU. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jamil Dakwar. Thank you for having me on. Well, this assessment from the UN Human Rights Committee can be read as particularly meaningful at the moment, as the United States asserts both openly and covertly, its power in the Middle East. But the report is about many things, both international and here in the United States. I know that people are not going to see a lot, if any, of media coverage on this report. So what is the report and then what's in it that we should acknowledge? So the report that uh, was released last Friday, November 3rd, is a result or an outcome of a review uh, that happened last month on the 17th and 18th of October by the UN Human Rights Committee. This is a committee of independent experts of about 18 members that come from different parts of the world, and they are in charge of monitoring the implementation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This treaty, the International Covenant of Political Rights, or the ICCPR, as it's commonly referred to, was one of the first international human rights treaties that the United States ratified in the early 1990s, right after the end of the Cold War, when the United States was showing that, look, we are, as you said, you know, we are the city on the hill. We are the beacon of freedom, of democracy, of human rights for all other countries, and we are going to be committed to these things by signing on and ratifying this treaty. And however, that was 30 years ago, and we have this report, uh, which was issued by the independent experts of the UN Human Rights Committee, based on reviewing the United States periodic report that was submitted in 2021, essentially concluded that the US has so much more work to do It has fallen behind, and it's actually an outlier in many areas when it comes to civil and political rights, and particularly with regard to marginalized communities. This is a really damning report. This is a report that review happens every eight or nine years. The last time this happened was in 2014 during the Obama administration. The United States report itself to the committee was submitted in the last five days of the Trump administration, and the Biden administration showed up before the committee Although they attempted to show some of the work and some of the important steps that they took in order to address some of the backsliding on human rights that happened in the last eight years, the committee was not convinced. And in specific uh, terms, it went one by one. And in the report, which I hope you can post it also on your website, is a, a very long document that covers a massive amount of issues from indigenous rights to reproductive rights to voting rights, to issues related to uh, free speech and assembly rights, use of force, the criminal legal system that was also analyzed in the report, looking at specific extreme sentences and punishment like death by incarceration, for example, and many, many other issues that really is hard to enumerate in just a, a short interview. But the bottom line is, this was another wake-up call for the United States, is that you really cannot claim the moral high ground. You cannot preach other countries on human rights when you're not doing enough here 
at home, in your own backyard. And I think civil society organizations that participated in the review, and we had over 140 of them from the United States, all the way from Guam, the colonial territories of Guam, to Puerto Rico, to Alaska, Hawaii, to United States, different parts of the United States. And the civil society organizations have made it clear that they are not going to accept the same talking points or the same formulations that government officials from the State Department, from the White House, from the Justice Department have put forward to the committee. They are inadequate, more needs to be done. And that's something that I think echoed by the recommendations that were made in the report of the Human Rights Committee. Well, I do think that a lot of folks will actually find it jarring to hear the term human rights applied in a U.S. domestic context. Mm -hmm. Human rights is something that other countries have violations of. And the idea of looking at missing and murdered indigenous girls, at the death penalty, at asylum policy, at solitary confinement, at looking at those as human rights issues, I think is just difficult for many people. And I, I don't want it to get lost There is a call to action. There are calls to action suggested by the report. So what are they saying should actually happen right now? First, the committee said we're not happy and we're not satisfied with the way that the United States has been implementing or rather failing to implement the treaty at the state, local and federal level. So they first uh, expressed that concern and they also said that we, we don't accept the reservations that the United States has entered when when the U.S. ratified it. But more importantly, they said the United States doesn't have a human rights infrastructure Mm -hmm. to implement international human rights obligations. And they called as a matter of a priority to establish a national human rights institution, which many countries around the world, including the closest U.S. Western allies, have, where this body would be in charge of implementing and monitoring and helping the United States uphold its international human rights obligations and commitments at the national level, and meaning at the federal, state, and local level. We don't have such a body. In fact, we don't have any monitoring body which relates to human rights. And therefore, this was one of the first and I think a prominent recommendations that is in the report. The committee also made significant detailed recommendations going through the list from, as you said, indigenous rights issues related to sacred sites and land, uh, tribal lands or land where there was not adequate consultations with indigenous communities and asked them to uphold the principle of free prior and informed consent, which is a universal principle accepted by many countries around the world when it comes to intrusion and violating uh, the rights of indigenous peoples, particularly in the extraction development uh, industry. Mm -hmm. The other area that was very prominent was in the area of gender equality and reproductive rights, where the committees also noted and called for significant changes in the way that the United States government is upholding its international human rights obligations with relation to protecting women's rights to choose, women's rights to their own body, the domestic violence and the fact that this is a endemic that has really reached the highest proportion. Mm-hmm. It also addressed the issue of immigration and rights of immigrants, including in immigration detention facilities. The, the fact that many people are losing their right to seek asylum, something that we've seen deteriorating even under the Biden administration. It called on the United States even to look at the the impact of climate crisis on human rights in the United States, something that 
usually is not looked at as a matter of a human rights, rather as a matter of environmental right, or only as a matter of a climate crisis matter, separate from human rights. It also called on the U.S. to address voting rights as a really urgent issue, where we know, and the committee noted, the the gerrymandering and the districting that was happening around the country, the suppression of voter rights, particularly of minority and marginalized communities. So all of those are in the report. They are calling on the United States within three years to submit progress report on what will be taken in order to address issues of immigration, reproductive rights, and voting rights. And then in eight years, the U.S. will be up for another review. I mean, of course, the U.S. shouldn't be waiting for eight years to start working on its own record. I think that's where our role as civil society organizations to hold our government accountable, to make sure that they are doing what they should do, what they should have done yesterday or years ago, and in an urgent manner, because it really impacts not only people in the United States. Some of the policies impact millions of people who reside outside the United States, particularly with regard to U.S. massive surveillance policies. The impact of the United States' policies of foreign assistance, as we know, impacts the rights of people who live outside the United States, including people who are still held at places like Guantanamo Bay, where the committee expressed deep concern that the Guantanamo Bay detention facility is still open and the kangaroo courts of military commissions are still hearing accusations and capital charges against some of the individuals held there. So the, the call for action is clear. I think it's the, the, the now it's up to the U.S. government at all levels to take that seriously. And I think for us as civil society organizations and the media, to hold the government accountable as to the progress that should be made in the next few years in terms of where the U.S. will find itself. Is it going to really live up to this self-defined title of a global leader on human rights and champion of universal human rights, or it's going to continue to be only talk and no action that will follow? Well, I just did want to add, finally, that just because corporate news media deal in crudeness doesn't mean that people aren't capable of holding ambiguity, of both seeing that their government has undeserved power and also caring about the way that that power is deployed. And I guess one of the things I'm maddest about is the way that corporate media conflate what they call U.S. interests with those of the American people. And I know that people are deeper than that, are are smarter than that. And so media are not just underserving us, but erasing many of us um, and the complexity and the depth of understanding that we're capable of having when it comes to the U.S. role in the world. Absolutely. I think that is an important distinction to be made. And I think that based on polling, most people in the United States understand the importance of human rights, actually understand also the importance of the role of international human rights bodies, including the bodies like the UN Human Rights Committee and the role of the United Nations. And yet there is an organized, orchestrated attack to delegitimize the human rights movement in different ways. And I think that is something that the lack of any concerted effort to do human rights education in the United States is clear, and there's the whole movement to do censorship in the classroom, you know, to block the ability of students to learn about histories such as slavery or genocide of indigenous peoples or about the, the rights of, of LGBTQ uh, community and so on. So there's a serious, organized, ideologically driven 
movement against any progress that this country has made over the years. And I think that there is a responsibility for all people in this country to take that seriously, meaning to push back against those efforts. And I think the UN human rights bodies really can do much in order to really flag the concerns and the urgency and the disparities and the gaps between international human rights norms and standards and U.S. policies and practices. And it's really up to the people to organize and to do what they need to do in order to hold their government officials accountable. And there are some work happening on the state and local level. Um, In Geneva, when we were in Geneva last month, we had the head of the Missouri Human Rights Commission uh, Elisa Warren, mm-hmm. uh, who is also the president of IORA, its International Association of Human Rights Agencies and Officials, that is coordinating the work of state and local human rights commissions. These agencies told the U.S. government, you should support us, you should give, provide incentives and guide us and help us do this work on the state and local level. And so there's so much energy, there's so much Uh, out there that needs to be done. And I think there's only a hope that there should be the right political capital spent on this rather than spent on other issues and distorting the ideals of human rights and the notion that these really start at the very local level, very local community level. And even if we don't do that now, it will be too late because this is going to impact the way our future generation of people living in this country will be having a much worse situations in terms of their ability to enjoy all of their human rights, not just civil political rights, as this particular treaty was on, but also social economic cultural rights, which are mm-hmm. the, the other part where the United States is falling behind in recognizing and respecting as a matter of constitutional uh, framework, as a matter of, of a law, as a matter of a decent treatment of all human beings. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Jamil Dakwar. He's director of the Human Rights Program at the ACLU. Thank you again, Jamil Dakwar, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for this opportunity. The new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, describes himself as a Bible-believing Christian. Though theologians are coming forward to say, go pick up a Bible, is not really a coherent spiritual worldview. Johnson claims he has zero assets and no bank account because he's a man of modest means. Though financial analysts are saying that actually suggests something rather shadier. And then there's his use of language as when he said new U.S. funding for Israel would be balanced out by pay-fors in the budget. There are a number of questions about Mike Johnson, which is not at all the same as calling the person third in line for the presidency, as did CNN, a blank slate. Our next guest has been tracking the right and its influence for many years now. Matt Gertz is senior fellow at Media Matters for America. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Matt Gertz. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to ask you about this offset Israel aid with IRS cuts thing. But first, Mike Johnson himself. He's not a babe in the woods (laughs) with no defining characteristics. What should we know about where he's been and what he's done? I think Mike Johnson is a sort of house backbencher who's been promoted quite swiftly to one of the most powerful positions in Washington. And so 
I think everyone has been kind of struggling to figure out what he's all about and how to define him. That said, I think it's quite clear that he comes out of the social conservative part of the GOP. He was for a long time an attorney for Alliance Defending Freedom, which is an anti-LGBTQ hate group. He is a fierce opponent of abortion rights, and his legislative record reflects both of those. In addition, I think we might want to consider him as the sort of dog who caught the car here. (laughs) Um, He became speaker after a long struggle in which uh, Republicans found themselves unable to find someone who could unite the party. Everyone basically got exhausted and put him forward and made him speaker. But Mike Johnson is someone who has never done any of the functions that the job requires. He has never served as the chief communicator for House Republicans. He has never needed to count votes to pass bills. He has never raised large sums of money, as the position also requires. He's never run a large staff. And so I think what we've been seeing, certainly in the early going here, is that he is really struggling to handle the core functions of the job. We're seeing budget bills that are getting pulled from the floor, votes that the Republicans are losing that they're not supposed to. He's really just not managing the party in the way you would expect from someone in that position. Well, and then if we look at what he has actually said and stood for, I mean, his ability to do the job, (laughs) such as it is, is one thing, but he is a person. He has a record. And part of his record is homophobia, as you've said, you know, but it's not just garden variety. He calls same-sex marriage equality, he said, is a dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy. That's not normal language. It's a bizarre choice, he says, to be gay. But media talk about that as though it's his eye color. That's like a thing that he thinks he hates gay people. Isn't that actually a disqualification from making laws for the U.S.? public. And then also he's an election 2020 denier. He's a climate change denier. There are things that we do know about him that should inform our understanding of his actions. That's exactly right. I mean, he is very much a creature of the far right fringe of the Republican Party and someone who, if he gets his way and is able to pass legislation that he has previously supported, things like a national version of Florida's Don't Say Gay law, nationwide abortion bans, would be extremely dangerous. And I don't think the mainstream press has done quite a good enough job of making that clear to the public. Now, on the one hand, they're struggling just to figure out what this is all about, but you really need to do your job and get those basic details out into the public. Yeah, I just saw a headline that was something like, most U.S. voters don't have an opinion on Mike Johnson. And I'm like, well, yeah, because they don't know him. And that would be where reporting would come in. And for CNN to call him a blank slate, I think that's very telling. There's work for journalists to do there and to not do it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be done. I don't usually quote Steve Bannon, (laughs) uh, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out here that he describes Mike Johnson as one of the intellectual architects of pushing back on the stolen election and by far the most conservative speaker in the history of the country. You know, I I think the 
The January 6th, uh, his role there is very telling. He was the architect of the brief that uh, congressional Republicans filed in support of Texas's bid to throw out electoral votes in key states and basically have Trump declared president. He was doing that at Trump's request, he has said. And of course, that lawsuit went nowhere, which did not keep him from continuing to say that he was going to fight against the stolen election through January 6th and then vote to not count electoral votes after the insurrection happened. So clearly a a true believer in these sort of heinous ideas. But, you know, there was an initial push from reporters to get him on the record on January 6th in his first press conference. Mm -hmm. He was asked about it. And the result was the Republicans around him booed, and he simply moved on to the next question. The next reporter in line did not say, you should just answer the question you were just asked, but moved on to something else. Uh, And he's basically been able to dodge that ever since. I did want to give a little time here to talk about this offset thing, not just because of what it tells us about Mike Johnson, but because so many media seem to swallow and regurgitate what was a fairly obviously nonsensical idea. And just like with the election denial, it's like you can say, well, it came to naught, so let's not consider it. But you have to consider it because it's important to tell us the way these people are thinking. So tell us about this idea that Johnson put forward that we're going to speed forward aid for Israel, but it's not going to cost taxpayers anything because we're going to balance it out. His claim was that there would be pay-fors in the budget to pay for this aid. We're not just printing money to send it overseas. He said to Sean Hannity, we're going to find the cuts elsewhere to do that. But when House Republicans released their bill, it paired uh, $14.3 billion for Israel with $14.3 billion in cuts for the IRS from the IRS funding that was passed last year in the Inflation Reduction Act. The problem, of course, is that the money used to increase the budget of the IRS is actually beneficial to the budget because it gets more money out of wealthy taxpayers who have been cheating on their taxes. So the CBO ends up looking into it and finds that actually it's going to blow a huge hole in the deficit rather than paying for it. Unfortunately, a lot of journalists swallowed this altogether and just reported that the aid would be paid for by cutting from the IRS. Some of them did a little bit better and pointed out deep in the article that actually the offset, so to speak, was going to be even worse for the deficit. And some did, to their credit, actually explain that this wasn't the case. You know, it was an early test whether the press would be willing to regurgitate false claims for Mike Johnson. And I don't think we could say by any means that they passed it. All right, we'll end it there, but not forever. We've been speaking with Matt Gertz. He's Senior Fellow at Media Matters. Thank you so much, Matt Gertz, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The show is engineered by Riley Bear. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.